Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me by my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, please keep your Bibles open there to uh, Revelation 3, uh, verses 14 to 22. And we're going to uh, just ask for the Lord's blessing on our time this morning as we uh, delve into his word together. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word to us. Uh, Lord, your word reminds us that it is indeed a living word, a word written so long ago and yet which speaks very much into our lives today and into the very context in which we live This word is applicable across all ages, in all generations, Lord, in all circumstances and situations. Lord, your word not only is a living word, it is a life-giving word. And we pray this morning that as we look into it, that, Lord, that we might indeed discover that life is found first and foremost in you, in our faith and trust in you, and, Lord, as we hope to, in you as well. So, Lord, we commit our time to you. We ask, Lord, for your great blessing to be upon uh, the preaching of your word. Lord, help us all have ears to hear what you might say to us and to your church today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Faith said, we come to the last in uh, our series in this uh, letter to the churches in Revelation. We've uh, looked at uh, uh, six uh, previous letters over the past uh, couple of months. We began, of course, back there in Revelation 2 with the church at Ephesus, a church very much uh, strong in its orthodoxy and its ministry and that sort of thing, but which Christ said, you are indeed a loveless church, even though you've got all this going for them, you really need the most important thing, which is love. Then uh, Christ wrote to the, uh, the church in Smyrna and called that the faithful church. To Pergamum, which he referred to as the worldly church. To Thyatira, the overly tolerant church. To Sardis, the spiritually dead church. And of course, last week to Philadelphia, the persevering church. 
And this final letter that we come to today is indeed this letter to the church in Laodicea. Remember, these churches are a series of churches there in, 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 uh, in ancient uh, the, the, um, Asia Minor, or what we know today as Turkey. And it was kind of like a, a circular route that, uh, that people would often go uh, around, around these various uh, cities and churches. And so the letter, these letters would have been circulated around the churches uh, in that fashion. They were written by the Apostle John on the uh, island of Patmos and uh, were taken across to Asia Minor and to these churches. As we come to this last church this morning, you know, sometimes we like to keep the best till last, don't we? I mean, I'm one of those people who like to sort of keep the best till last. Uh, I'm one of these people who will eat the veggies on his plate first because I like the good stuff to be left over. And who likes cold peas anyway? But today, Jesus doesn't leave the best till last. He actually leaves the very worst until till last. Uh, in Jesus' own words, this church made him actually want to spit them out of his mouth. We see that in verse 16. For Jesus, the problem with this church was that they were a lukewarm church. Now, when we think of that term lukewarm, some have taken it to mean that, you know, these Christians were perhaps a little bit half-hearted in their relationship with Jesus in the way they went about living out their faith for, well, with him. But, uh, you know, some people say that, you know, when Jesus says, I'd rather you be hot or cold, that Jesus is saying, you know, I'd rather you be, you know, red-hot Christians, you know, really on fire for me with that spiritual passion and, and fervor and enthusiasm and, and excitement and that sort of stuff. But if that's the case, then I kind of have a bit of a problem with what Jesus means about being, I'd rather you be hot or cold. Because, I mean, cold is, is often taken to mean, well, you know, to be cold towards Jesus is to be really, really spiritually apathetic towards Jesus. It means to be sort of cold in our spiritual lives, you know, not switched on at all, but, to, but you know, sort of really not give much of a, a thought to our spiritual lives whatsoever. So surely Jesus isn't saying this, that I'd rather you be, you know, on fire or, or just completely cold towards me. Surely lukewarm would be better than cold, wouldn't you think? So when Jesus speaks of lukewarm here in this passage, I think he's referring to something other than the aspect of the spiritual temperature of the church to these Christians. In fact, what I believe he's saying is, or he's referring to is that this lukewarmness actually made this church nauseating to him. This nauseating quality. Who likes tea here in, this, in the congregation? Who likes a, a nice cup of tea? Yes? Now, who hates it when their tea gets that lukewarm or coldness to it, yes? All right, there's nothing worse than lukewarm, isn't there? You know, when a, on a really, really hot day, you're looking for that really nice cold ice water or something like that, and, uh, you know, you go to grab a water, and if it's tepid, if it's been sitting in the car for a little while or something like that, you go to drink that water. The, the, the first thing you want to do is you want to spit it out of your mouth, don't you? This horrible, tepid liquid. Well, this particular imagery would have been quite uh, stark to the Laodiceans. This city was one of three sister cities in this particular valley known as the Lycus Valley. The other two, are the, the other two cities that were close by were the city called Herapolis and also Colossae. We've got uh, a letter to the Colossians actually here in, uh, in our Bibles. Herapolis was known for its mineral hot springs Okay, and uh, these were places where the people would, would kind of go to. They would go there to, to bathe and to relax and to restore and to find healing in these beautiful mineral hot springs. 
Colossae, on the other hand, was known for its beautiful, fresh uh, uh, um, water, clear, cool water that came out of a, a flowing uh, uh, stream right near the, the, uh, the town. But Laodicea was a place that did not have its own water supply, so it actually had to pipe its water in from these other places, from Herapolis and from Colossae. And back in those days, they didn't have the kind of plumbing that we enjoy today. They had aqueducts. And so the water would flow along these concrete aqueducts or these, 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 these stone aqueducts to the city. And, of course, by the time the really hot water got to Laodicea, it was, in fact, lukewarm. And by the time the cold water got from Colossae to Laodicea, it, too, was no longer nice and cold and refreshing. It was lukewarm as well. And so we see that, uh, that Laodicea's water supply was this, was this really horrible, tepid kind of water. And not only that, because of the, the heavy mineral content that, that came, particularly from Herapolis, it stunk. It was really horrible. And, 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 and to drink that water at a, at, a, at a lukewarm temperature made people want to literally spit it out of their mouths. This is what Jesus was saying or was reminding the church that they were like. They were like their own water supply that was nauseating and that you would want to spit out of your mouth. So what was it about the church that made it so nauseating to Jesus? Well, we find the answer in verse 17. You know, Jesus says, look, he says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would, you, would that you were either cold or hot? No, I'd rather that you were either cold or hot, he says. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And this is the reason why. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Here is the key. In the minds of the Laodiceans, these Laodicean believers, they were doing fine, thank you very much. They were doing really, really well in their particular context. They were saying, we are rich, we have prospered. In fact, we don't need anything or anyone. Now, back in AD 60, there was an incredible earthquake in this particular region. Mark spoke about it last week at the church at Philadelphia, whereas, you know, there in that city, people wouldn't even live in the city because of the fact that, you know, the, the buildings were sort of starting to fall down and that sort of stuff. When these cities started to rebuild, Laodicea was actually offered a great deal of money from the emperor of the day to help rebuild the city, but they turned him down and said, no thanks, we don't need your money, we're fine ourselves. We've got all the wealth and all the resources and all the equipment and all the stuff that we need, we don't need anybody's help. And here is the issue that Jesus has with this church and these Christians at Laodicea. They had become smugly self-sufficient. Smugly self-sufficient. So much so that they didn't even need Jesus. A Christian church that didn't even need Jesus. You know, this city in its day was an incredibly wealthy and prosperous city, as I just mentioned. It was known for three things. It was known for its banking. It was a, a centre of commerce, kind of like a bit of like modern-day Wall Street, that sort of thing today. 
Not only was it a centre of banking, it was also a centre known for its clothing industry, particularly this, this, this black, this fine black wool and the, the special garments that were made out of that. It was known for its clothing industry. And lastly, it was known for a particular medical, medical school attached to a temple in that city. And this medical school had, a, had discovered a particular um, a remedy or a solution, if you like, to a particular form of blindness. So they'd, they'd, they'd come up, they'd develop this kind of salve, this ointment for this particular form of blindness. It would appear that the people in the church, like the general population of Laodicea, were reasonably well off, and this caused them to become incredibly self-reliant to the point that they really had little need for Jesus in their lives. Their prosperity had become a hindrance to them growing in their faith and their dependence upon God. Sure, they had plenty of money, they had plenty of resources, material possessions, they had power, they had status, they had knowledge, they had ingenuity. This church, these people thought that they had all that they needed. How wrong they were. And folks, I believe today this is a very, very great danger for us here in the West today. For we live in such a, a wealthy society and many of us are pretty self-sufficient in our lives, aren't we? We're able to have a roof over our heads. Whether we own the house or we're renting the house, I think most of us here would, would be able to say we have a roof over our heads. We have that security of a home to live in. In fact, those homes are not just, you know, uh, really um, squatter kind of homes. They're quite reasonable homes, aren't they? They're very pleasant homes. They're very comfortable homes that we live in. Not only do we have nice homes, we also have nice clothes to wear. In fact, not just one set of clothes, but probably a wardrobe full of clothes, if you're anything like my daughters, you've got wardrobes of clothes. <laughs> I shouldn't do that. I'm going to be in trouble for that later, I'll tell you. <clears throat> I think actually... In, they, <laughs> here we go. Actually, I probably, I probably own more clothes than my wife, actually. So there's a, there, there, there you go. I'll set the record straight. <clears throat> you get the point, don't you? We've all got some pretty comfortable clothes to wear and lots of them. All right, I've just been in trouble already, so there you go. <clears throat> Not only can we go to our wardrobe and find nice clothes to wear, but we can also go to the fridges and find plenty of food to eat, or pantries, and find plenty of food to eat. We don't really lack there either, do we? We've got access to good health care, in fact, to wonderful health care. We've got access to amazing education, to entertainment, all kinds of things that make our lives incredibly comfortable and make us amazingly self-sufficient. We generally lack very little, if anything. And for many of us, we can get by pretty well under our own steam with our own resources. And folks, this is the huge peril for the Christian today. It's the huge peril for each and every one of us. Listen to God's words to his Old Testament people, the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 14. Through Moses, he says to them, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God and not keep his commandments and his rules and statutes which I command you today. 
And this is why they might do that. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, the danger is that your heart will be lifted up. In other words, you'll get proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Back Even back then, God said to his people, here's the danger, when I bring you into the land, this wonderful promised land which I have, which I have said that I will bring you to, a land flowing with milk and honey, beware. Because when you get in that land and you start to enjoy the blessings of that land and you start to grow and multiply, you build beautiful houses to live in, you, your families grow, your crops and your, your herds grow and you, you, know, you start getting all this financial wealth and things like that, beware because it's at that particular point that you will become proud and you will forget God. In the New Testament, we have a similar warning. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says this. As for the rich in this present age... By the way, we're not talking about the Jeff Bezoses and the, uh, the, the, the Bill Gateses and then that sort of thing. We're actually talking about you and I. I've said this before from this pulpit. You and I actually, in, in terms of, of, from a worldly perspective, we fall into the top 1% of the wealthiest living in our world today the top 1%. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud or prideful in their, in their, in their uh, attitudes, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set them on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. They are to be rich, rather, in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus says... People find, you know, their meaning, their purpose, their significance, their security and that sort of thing in the riches and the wealth and the material possessions that they're able to gain in this world. People will think that that is the place where we can truly find life, where we can truly find happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction in our lives. But Jesus says... If you are rich because God has blessed you in all that you have, remember to do good with what God has given you, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven as a good foundation for your eternal future so that in this you may take hold of that which is truly life. Remember the, uh, the, the, uh, the encounter that this rich young man has with Jesus in Matthew 19. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, well, you know, you keep the commandments. Love, you, love God, love your neighbor, love your you know, honor your father and mother and that sort of thing. And the ruler says, Master, I've done all that. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's a very religious person. He's kept the, the, the law, thinking that that makes him wealthy in God's sight. And Jesus says, one more thing you should do. Go and give everything away that you have, all of your wealth to the poor. Go give it all away. That rich young man gazes into the eyes of Jesus and then he drops his head and he walks away because he was indeed an incredibly wealthy man and he couldn't give it up. Now, Jesus wasn't necessarily saying, in order to be God's child, you need to be poor. In fact, God has blessed many of us with wonderful wealth. And there's nothing wrong in being rich. There's nothing wrong with having a good amount of money in the bank account. There's nothing wrong with having nice homes and things like that. But, it is, but this young man, he put his hope and his faith and his trust and his, his love was for the things that he had rather than God. And this is the danger for us, that our love and our security and our hope and that we can put in the things that we have in our, in our material possessions and our wealth and our securities rather than in God himself. In living in such a wealthy society such as ours, the ever-apparent danger is that we ourselves become the source of our own security and our own confidence. That we become that which we worship along with the things that we have that bring us enjoyment. That is the danger. Because in when that happens... Jesus takes a back seat in our lives. And sometimes not even in the back seat, even out of the car. We leave him on the side of the road. When we start living like that, Jesus only becomes important to us when we have needs that we can't meet out of our own resources. And Jesus, in that regard, come, becomes the genie in the bottle. I can't fix this, so Jesus, here, you're up. This is your department. And folks, one of the things which I, I, I see today is that when we live this way, when we live with, you know, these, these resources, our own abilities and all that sort of stuff, when we start putting our focus and our trust and our confidence and things in these sorts of things, thinking that we've got stuff covered, it means that we then start to take prayer less seriously. We have very little need for prayer. And one of the dangers for us as a church today is that we become so confident in all that we have that we become a prayerless church and prayerless people. 
Because when we've got it all, why do we need to pray? In the Lord's Prayer, there is that phrase, give us this day our daily bread. You know it? Why would we need to pray that to God when we ourselves are quite adequately, adequately and easily able to supply our daily bread each and every day? But when we realise that we are desperately in need of God for in every minute and every hour and every aspect of our lives, it is then we start to know that he is the one that we've got to look to in all things. Folks, the church in the West today is incredibly prayerless. And that prayerlessness reflects a self-confidence, a self-assurance. It reflects the fact that we are dependent more upon ourselves and our own abilities than we are on God. And therefore, we worship who? We worship us rather than him. What's the first commandment? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You will not bow down to any idols and worship them, for I am the Lord your God. Now, we say we live in an age of grace. Yes, we do. But that does not mean we, we completely write off the law of God. Folks, God has got to be first and foremost number one in our lives, above all else. And he wasn't in the Laodicean church. And Jesus says, because of this, you nauseate me and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know, we as a church here at North Pine, we have got plenty of money in the bank. Praise God. We have got wonderful facilities, facilities that many churches around would die for, would give their right arms for. We have got a range of ministries that cater to all ages. We've got incredibly capable and skilled people. Again, praise God for that. We can put on a good worship service. We can generally accomplish all that we need to within our own abilities. So the danger for us as the North Pine Baptist Church, as the people who make up the North Pine Baptist Church, is that we too can fall into the trap of leaving Jesus out of the picture. When we rely and rest on our own resources. And when we do that, we fail to trust Jesus as we should. And we only attempt what we think we are capable of with what we have. And folks, as a church, we need to guard against that. Prayer and faith is the key, not our own abilities and our own resources. Ongoing prayerful dependence and trust upon God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we say from this pulpit, 
we would love for you to be praying. Whether that be with us on a Sunday afternoon here in this building or at the back of the church in the church hall, whether it be in our connect groups through the week, whether it be in your own personal quiet times with the Lord, whether it be where two or three come together through the week, whether it be even over a cup of tea out there in the courtyard over morning tea this morning, we need to be praying for one another because we don't need human abilities and power in order to be able to be the people God has called us to be. We need spiritual power. Amen? We need to see the spiritual power of God at work, but when we just can do it in our own strength, in our own abilities, and God takes a back seat, you know what? God doesn't show up at all. And that should scare the heck out of us. This church in Laodicea was not only self-sufficient, though, it was also self-deceived. Look at that second half of verse 17. For you say, Jesus says, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But Jesus says, you don't realise. You don't realise. You have no idea that you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. See, no church in all of these seven churches had a higher opinion of itself than the Laodicean church. And yet no church was in a spiritually worse condition. Not even Sardis, you know, the one that was called the dead church. Even in Sardis, at least there were a few. There were a few who still trusted in Jesus and who had not soiled their clothes by, by, by going after the things of this world and by forgetting Jesus. Jesus has absolutely nothing positive to say to the Christians in Laodicea. That can't be said of, uh, of any of the other churches here in these letters. The only church where Jesus has absolutely nothing positive to say. And you know, the irony here is absolutely palpable, folks. It really is. Because in a city renowned for its great wealth... Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true one, the sorcerer, the source and ruler over all creation, the one who holds all things in his hands, the one who knows everything, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the all glorious and all lifted up and holy one, says this. He's about to give them their true report card. And he says, in, a, in the city renowned for its great wealth, you know what? You are poor. You are in absolute poverty. In a city renowned for its clothing, its fine fashion industry, Jesus says, you are naked. In a city renowned for its unique eye ointment that cures blindness, Jesus says, you are blind. 
This church thought it was something, but Jesus tells them that they are nothing. As I said, this church may have thought that their material blessing was even a sign of God's favour, God's blessing upon them. How many times do we hear that today? Yet they could not have been further from the truth. And folks, self-deception is a wonderful tool of the enemy. And it can run deep in every single one of us. What you may not be able to see in yourself, believe me, other people can see it very clearly. (laughs) Hence the wardrobe and the clothes. Have you ever been out to dinner at a lovely restaurant with your loved one or your friend or sitting opposite you? You've tucked into this beautiful dinner. You're having a wonderful conversation. You're smiling and you're laughing. You get home and you look in your mirror and you've got this piece of green stuff stuck right there in the middle of your teeth. You can be completely oblivious, unaware to that. Folks, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to come regularly before the Lord in humility and ask his Holy Spirit to reveal our sin to us. To reveal to us those things which we may even be blind about in our lives. Not only that, we need to have those other believers to whom we are accountable to whom we give permission to be honest with us. And then we need to listen to them and to heed their counsel. Some of you have been blessed by God with a wonderful husband or wife. Those people are these kind of people in your life. Some of you have been blessed with incredibly close and loving friends, Christian friends. These are the people that God has placed in your life. But God has also called you to be part of his church, the people of God. And folks, we need to be these kind of people to one another in our lives. Not so we can can look at at someone who may have fallen or failed, who has got some of these these things in their life that they need to address and and think, I'm so much better than you but for us to actually look at one another and say, we are all wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind and naked and we need to put our arms around each other and help lift one another up in the Lord. We need to heed wise counsel. And speaking of counsel, Jesus goes on to give This church then the remedy to their spiritual self-deception and their spiritual self-sufficiency. And we see that in verse 18 where he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness and may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They needed to buy from him three things. Gold, refined by the fire to make them truly rich. White garments to hide their shame and nakedness and salve for their eyes so that they could truly see. And in this, what we see, folks, is that it is only from Jesus that we can obtain that which is of true value from a spiritual perspective. 
It is only from Jesus. Now, of course, we cannot literally buy these things. They are gifts of grace from Jesus, which we receive by faith. This this phraseology, to buy from me, we see a similar language used in Isaiah 55 where God counsels the people of Israel to buy from him without money and without price. In other words, these things are offered in such a way as a person takes possession of them with with the same assurance and right as if they had paid for them, but in reality, someone else has paid the price for them, namely Jesus. We can take hold of these things with the same assurance that they are ours as though we bought them ourselves, but in the knowledge that we haven't really, but Jesus has paid the price for us on our behalf. And he's the one who supplied them. The purified gold, the finest quality without any impurity, that's what it means to be refined by the fire, is the spiritual riches of salvation and all of its inherent blessings. The white garments picture the righteousness of Christ, which he gives to us in place of our sin and our shame. The eye salve is the spiritual ability to see things as they truly are, to know the truth about God, about his salvation in Jesus Christ, about his ways, about our own spiritual condition and about the spiritual hope that can only be found in Jesus. That's what these things refer to here in this passage. Jesus says it is these things that you desperately need. Now, of course, the reason Jesus counsels the Laodicean Christians to come to him is why? Because he loves them. Look at it. Look at the passage. He says this. He says, those whom I what those whom i love those whom i love i reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent there's the remedy first and foremost we recognize the great love that god has for each and every one of us a love so wonderfully displayed through his son, the Lord Jesus, who would come and give his life in our place as our substitute, that we might be reconciled to this holy God. Because, folks, our sin not only is is something which holds us back, but our sin is something which indeed separates us from God forever, for eternity, and which places us under his wrath. And because he loves us so much, he desires that we be reconciled to him in this beautiful, intimate relationship with him, that our sins are forgiven, that we are cleansed and we are embraced and welcomed into his family as his adopted children. He counsels these Christians because he loves them first and foremost. Proverbs 3, 11 to 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. That's quoted again in Hebrews 12. 
Yes, their current spiritual state deeply repulses Jesus, yet he desires to be with them. How about that? So he calls them, in light of his love, to be zealous for him, for righteousness, for holiness, and to repent, to turn away from the foolishness, to turn away from their own self-security and their, their own self-assurance and instead turn back to Jesus and look to him and trust in him and follow him. And he follows this up with the incredible invitation in verse 20 where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, this is a verse used extensively in an evangelistic context, context where, you know, it's Jesus is there knocking at the door of your heart and anyone who opens up that door of your heart, he'll come in and, 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 and make, take up his residence there in your life with him. And, and that's, a fair enough, that's a fair enough kind of, you know, sort of thing to say. But it's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to believers. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's like we are all here gathered this morning in this place. We're singing the praises of God. We're rejoicing in that. We, uh, we sit in these beautiful, comfortable surroundings. We, we, we pray together. We worship together. We come around the word of God together. We hear it preached. We hear it read. We hear it in our hearts. And yet it could be that Jesus is actually out there and he's banging on the door saying, let me in. Let me in. See, Jesus wants to be a part of our life, not just an observer. He wants us to stop living as practical atheists because that's what it is when we put Jesus in the back seat. We live as practical atheists. And he wants us to experience true and real fellowship with him. It's interesting, in the culture of Jesus' day, in that particular day, the first century, there were three meals, similar to us. Breakfast, which was usually just a, a very, minimal, you know, very minimal kind of a meal, maybe a, a piece of bread or something small like that. Lunch was more of a, a picnic kind of a lunch, eat, eaten on the side of the road or in the city square as a bit of a break from the work. But supper, supper, this was a meal to be lingered over and enjoyed where people gathered around and spent time in one another's company. And this is the meal that Jesus Christ speaks of here because he doesn't want our relationship with him to be something that we rush through, but instead it is something to be savoured and enjoyed. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. What place does Jesus have in our lives and in this church at present. What place? What place does Jesus have in your life right now? Finally, Jesus ends with a promise. The one who conquers, that is the one who remains faithful, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That is to be, to be co-regents reigning with Jesus forever. That's the place of real honour. 
That's the place of real importance. That's the place of real significance. Far greater than anything this world has to offer, that's for sure. Jesus says to the one who remains faithful, that's what you have to look forward to. So do your comparisons, weigh it up. Sitting with Jesus on his throne or sitting down here in the gutter with all of this stuff that we think is, you know, at this particular point in time that's got all the bells and whistles and shiny and all that sort of stuff, which one day is going to completely fade away. Weigh it up. This passage concludes with the familiar words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, as we conclude this series, I want you to not only contemplate that question, what place does Jesus have in your life at present? But I ask you to contemplate this. And maybe even, you know, having contemplated it, you might even like to drop some thoughts down and maybe send it through to me via email. As we conclude this series, this letters to the churches in Revelation, if Jesus was to write you a personal letter today, what do you think he'd say? What would he say about you, about your life? If Jesus was to write a letter to this church, to the North Pine Baptist Church today, what do you think Jesus might say in that letter? But Jesus wants us to be aware of these things. Why? Because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And he knows that this stuff that we chase after in this world today will continually leave us empty, void, unsatisfied and lost and bound up. And Jesus wants to release us from that, that we might live in the fullness of the life that he alone offers. Isn't that the best kind of life to pursue? Yes? Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> I hope so. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, today we just uh, we come before you, and Lord, this is an incredible challenge here in this passage that reminds us again that it is so easy for us with all of the stuff that we have and that is available to us, Lord, that we can put our trust and our hope and our faith in these things rather than in you and leave you outside of our lives. Lord Jesus, please help us never to do that. And Lord, if we have right now, if, if that's the message that you're actually saying to us today in our own hearts, that this is, this is what we've come to, we pray, Lord, that we might indeed again reflect on your love for us and, Lord, turn from our wicked ways, repent and be zealous instead for you and for your, for your goodness and for your truth in our lives. May you never say to us, behold, I stand outside the door and knock. But instead, Lord, may we enjoy that, that, that fullness that comes from a, a constant, um, a constant uh, supping with you, Lord, that constant intimacy and, and joy of having you there in our lives each and every day as we look to you and trust in you. Help us to be those people. We ask it in your name. Amen.